I'm Tavid Nasir, and this is Leadership Biz Cafe, a podcast that provides insights and tools to help leaders take on the challenges and opportunities found in leading today's workplaces. Leadership Biz Cafe is brought to you by Tavid Nasir Leadership, our leadership firm that offers keynotes and corporate trainings in both in-person and virtual settings that will help you to improve the way you lead and guide your organization's growth and future successes. Now, if you've been enjoying my podcast and the insights and tools I've been sharing on how you can improve your leadership craft, and you're interested in having me expand on them with your team and organization, I'd like to invite you to check out my speaking page on our website at tavernasir.com to learn about some of the topics I can discuss at your upcoming event. And now I'd like to introduce my guest for this episode, John Baldoni. John is an executive coach, speaker, and author of over 15 books on leadership. He's written for such publications as Forbes, the Harvard Business Review, and Inc., and has been recognized as one of the world's top thought leaders in coaching by such organizations as Thinkers360 and Global Gurus. John has a brand new book out called Grace Under Pressure, Leading Through Change and Crisis, and I've invited him on the show to discuss his book and how it addresses some of the challenges we're seeing today in many organizations. Hi, John. Welcome to the Leadership Biz Cafe. I've been reading your work for some time now, so it's wonderful to have the opportunity to talk to you about leadership. Well, welcome to for this opportunity, uh, Tanvir. I have known of your work for many, many years, and, and finally we are connecting, so the honor is mine. So, John, I'd like to start a conversation here talking about something I know from your writings has been a particular focus of yours, and that is the relationship grace plays in today's leadership which is why I'm not surprised your latest book is called Grace Under Pressure. And there's a line you write in this book about grace that I think is particularly noteworthy to begin our conversation here, where you write, if purpose is our why, then grace becomes our how, the way we do things here. So to begin our conversation here, John, could you share some more of your thoughts of the role grace plays in today's leadership? especially when we're faced with the kind of challenges and uncertainties we're seeing right now? That's an excellent question. Um, Let me back up just a little bit. Grace Under Pressure, Leading Through Change and Crisis is my third book on the topic. Um, I've been writing about grace for uh, a few years, well, actually over a decade. However, I wrote my first book on grace in 2019. It's called Grace, A Leader's Guide to a Better Us. Everybody loved it. It did not sell. Then COVID struck, everybody was looking for a kind of grace. Grace for me is the catalyst for the greater good. It facilitates our engagement, our ability to connect to others. And so going through this, I did another interim book sort of, which was more poetry, reflections on the lockdown called Grace Notes, which was also, um, and I uh, illustrated it with my own photography and um, and the idea, I do play music. So Grace Notes is a, a form of, at least on piano, you can, um, the notes that kind of embellish a melody. But grace under pressure is my um, challenge to myself to give grace muscle. So what what do I mean by that? Grace under pressure, the book, is about um, what leaders need to do in times of change and crisis. And we're always in times of change. Ideally, we're not always in times of crisis. But what leaders do? One, they take care of their people. Two, they take care of themselves. And three, they prepare for the future. Well, that's not rocket science, Tanvir. Um, uh, lots of people know that and do that. 
But what I wanted to do was infuse it with the concept of grace. So what do I mean? Give grace muscle. So what does grace become? Grace becomes our courage, our candor, our commitment, as well as our generosity, our respect for others. And I think very, very importantly, compassion. Compassion for the human condition and the people as a leader that we lead and the people that we serve. That's the uh, genesis of where I am started and where I am now. Yeah, I think that really helps define the role grace plays in leadership. And I'm glad you brought up those three things good leaders do. Namely, they take care of their employees, they take care of themselves, and they help ready their organization and their people for what's to come in the future. So I think a great place for us to start is with that first section of what good leaders do and that they take care of their employees. Because if we look at some of the examples in the news about performance and the actions of those in leadership positions, we're not seeing a lot of caring for employees out there, which is why we saw things like the great resignation and quiet quitting. So. To start our discussion here of leaders putting the needs of their employees first, I'd love to hear your thoughts, John, on what's missing here and how do we get to that place where not only leaders take care of their employees, but that we're fostering a sense of community that moves the focus from individual interests to serving a larger purpose that defines our collective efforts. Well, grace becomes the the catalyst for the good, as I said. And so every leader, regardless of what the decisions are, I mean, excuse me, what the conditions are, means that you have to uh, work for joint purpose to enable people to bring out the best in them. Grace becomes that facilitator. And I'm glad you touched on the word of community because I have the sub theme throughout the book of creating community. And what do I mean by community? It's a place that people belong. Getting back to your very first question, um, purpose is our why, as many have said, and it stimulates our vision, which is our becoming. And it uh, creates our a sense of mission, which is our doing. And then it also sparks our values. But more importantly, that is where grace enters. Grace becomes, as you noted, the how. And so when we take care of our people, we're acting on the values slash grace equation. And that means we are thinking about our people as people, as human beings, um, as assets, good, but more importantly, as contributors. And you noted the word belonging, which I think is so critical. Now, Amy Edmondson, um, is uh, you know the pioneer in the concept of psychological safety. That is how you build community, when people feel safe to voice their opinions, where they can be heard. Now, important in community does not mean that we all think and act alike, nor should we. But we feel that there's something holding us together that is strong. People feel that in their faith. They feel that in volunteer organizations. And I believe they can also feel that in their uh, enterprise, whatever they're doing. And when we want people to come to work, uh, we want them to really be excited and enthused about what they do, to have, to use an old fashioned word now, it's engagement, highly engaged. But you can't do it with tricks and and, and just simply incentives. You do it with, a re- with purposeful um, actions that show people what the big picture is all about and how they contribute to it. Now, the the quotient that I'm focusing on now is the sense of grace, which is the goodness that we show. 
Um, grace facilitates connection, and that's what we need for community. That's what we need for a sense of belonging. And belonging solidifies our values so that we can achieve our vision and our mission. I do agree wholeheartedly with you, John, on the importance of community and belonging, especially given how we're seeing a lot of studies showing how people feel disconnected at work, that they don't feel a sense of belonging and connection. And I know some organizations are using this as the excuse for why they're mandating people to return to the office. But the fact is, we saw these high levels of disconnect even before the pandemic. And I'm sure this is one of the reasons why we're seeing this continual rise in workplace stress. So with this in mind, how can we use grace to grease the wheels and make it easier for us to foster that sense of community and belonging so that we can create a workplace environment where we can not only handle any crisis that comes our way, but that we become more comfortable leading our team and organization during times of continual change? I'll give you two words. I care. That needs to be the mantra of everyone in management. I care about results, yes, but I care about how the results are achieved, and I care about how those results are achieved. So as a manager, as a leader, I'm going to do my best to achieve uh, results in the best way possible. And one way to do that is to build this sense of belonging, building a sense of community where people want to be at work. They are engaged because they believe in what they're doing and they feel they see a, a greater purpose to what they're doing, a sense of belonging. Now, everyone in this is we, we cheat ourselves at times because we say, well, every job has to have a grand purpose. That's fine. That's right. But Tanvir, we're talking about about five percent of the world's working population. Man, most of us are doing jobs that we really don't like. So what's my purpose in there? My purpose is I'm providing for my family. My purpose is I'm uh, now enabling opportunities for others. I'm I'm uh, earning income to support my family. Yes, but I can do other things for them. I can be active in my community. So there's a grander purpose there. But grace is is understanding that we're all part of the human race, which we all say there. But we care about one another, and how you do it is to this form of connection, being available. Um, leaders build up a lot of credibility when they show a sense of humility. And I always used to joke that humility is one thing they don't teach in business school. I think actually some business schools do teach it. But humility is actually a sign of strength. When a leader says, I do not know something, but can you help me? Can you teach me? It opens the door for others to be of service, but also to say, hey, I don't understand something. Can you help me? You know, it was interesting, uh, Julia Borstein, who may have been a guest on your show, uh, she's a reporter for CNBC. She has a wonderful book out called When Women Lead. And she said that studies showed that during the lockdown, the height of the crisis for our pandemic, women leaders did very well. Why? Because they were not afraid to ask for help. Whereas we men think, well, I'll just figure it out. I'll gut it through. No. How about opening yourself up to possibilities? Now, of course, many male leaders did this. It's just one kind of a niche thing. But I think opening yourself up to the possibility of working together and creating those conditions for others is very important. And when people see that, they feel it, and then they want to do their best for the organization. 
So another thing we hear about leadership today is the importance of being resilient, which is often associated with having this bias for action. But in your discussion, your book about resilience and leadership being key to taking care of your employees, you write that resilience involves adding redundancy to your organization, which actually goes counter to the driving force behind so many of the layoffs we're seeing right now, where leaders are justifying the firings as necessary to help with organizational effectiveness. So I'd love it if you could share your thoughts here, John, on what seems to be a counterpoint to a common approach being used by many organizations right now. Uh, the idea of redundancy, came, I use the aircraft model. Uh, um, uh, every aircraft is built with you know at least three systems of redundancy in case one part fails, the next thing uh, will kick in. Redundancy, and this was an idea that uh, Rita McGrath um, spoke about, and I used it for my book. She's talking about redundancy in systems, not necessarily redundancy in people. So it's it's having a, a redundant system so that if one thing goes wrong, we have another way of accomplishing it. So in other words, we have more than one way to skin a cat. So it's not that you need excess number of people or we have a designated number. It's not about optimi optimization necessarily of the workforce. It's about creating a resilient system so there are backups. Uh, when things go wrong, we know what to do. And we do. We have our IT systems are all built with redundancies. And the thing about redundancies in people is not the employment part, but their capabilities so that... If you're working on a project, Tanvir, and you go down or let's idea get pulled into another job, I can step in and do it because I have that training. So cross-training is part of it. But it's also the sense that we know one another's capabilities and responsibilities. So it's not plug and play, but we have that ability to work together and cross-functionally. I think that is more of the redundancy that I was talking about. And that do, does lead to organizational resilience because we know that if one person goes down, there will be a backup. Now, if you have 100 people and you get rid of 90, well, then you're going to be in real trouble. <laughs> so. The other interesting thing I find about this idea is that it actually builds on what we were discussing about creating a sense of community and belonging. Because if you know that someone can step in and help make sure your work on a project gets completed, it sends the message that you know someone on your team has your back. And this reinforces that sense of belonging and community where you don't feel like you're operating in isolation, but that you have someone who can come in and offer a helping hand if you need it. Yes, and I have a, an interesting story about that. On my show, Grace Under Pressure, I've interviewed over 200 thought leaders from many different walks of life. And I ask every guest to share at least one story of Grace. And one physician told me uh, about an a time that uh, she, her, um, her mother was very gravely ill. Her boss called her in and said, um, uh, Jane, I want you to go to your mother and I want you to go now. And two, I don't want you to think about work at all. It's covered. That is a form of graceful redundancy, if you will. So this gave Jane the ability to focus on what she needed to do, care for her mother and the situation, and also care for herself and not be looking over her shoulder. Oh, I guess I'm not doing this at work. I'm not doing that. If we build these kind of redundant systems, if you will, uh, and do it with a sense of grace, what we're doing is there's no strings attached. So you're not going to be feeling, oh, I'm letting my team down by, you know, um, uh, leaving them in the lurch. 
We need to do things for ourselves and our caring. And then we come back stronger uh, because we've been supported, as you were talking about. So with this in mind, John, I'd like to explore the next thing good leaders do when it comes to dealing with change and crisis. And that is that they take care of themselves in order to make sure they're able to show up to deliver their best. And I'd like to talk with you about something that was a growing concern prior to the pandemic and which continues to be a challenge today, and that is workplace stress. Now, in this section of your book, you draw a connection to something we've already discussed, building resilience. So in the context of leaders taking care of themselves, how do leaders apply resilience to addressing stress where they're not simply charging through it, but really looking out for themselves so they can continue to do their best as a leader? Well, this is the part of the book where leaders probably fall down the most and not because but because they overcompensate leadership, as you well know, Tanvir, because um, you've been working in this field for decades, is that it's outward directed. It's it's caring for the team. And so what gets uh, overlooked is self. Now we're realizing that, hey, um, we need I need to optimize myself. And so I need to eat. Uh, right, exercise regularly, get plenty of rest, all of those kinds of things. And you are absolutely right. Um, the higher up you go in an organization, the more stress there is and need to learn how to deal with it. Uh, Dr. Sharon Melnick, whom I quote throughout this book, um, is a clinical psychologist and specializes in, in resilience. And she talks about the on-off switch. Leaders are typically always on. If you keep going on, you are going to burn out the other, the consequence of excess stress. Uh, and it will, you know, burn out and high degrees of stress also have health implications. Um, and so you need to learn to turn it off. How do you turn it off? Well, you, you, uh, there's many, many different ways to do it. One is digital detox, cut yourself off from the social, not just social media, but the, the email system. Take a pause, take a vacation, take a break, all of these things because you can, and it's not that, um, some executives will go, well, I can't do that. Well, okay. In certain stops, you, in certain situations, maybe in moments of crisis, you really can't walk away from the situation, but you have to find ways where you can get away from the work because what's happening is you're not doing yourself any favor. And worse, you're not helping the organization because they need you to be your, at your very best. They need your a fully charged uh, leader in uh, who's able to bring people together to get results done. Now, here's there's a little kind of a, a twist to this, Tanvir. And it's the sense that when I hear leaders say, well, I can't take time off or Part of that might be the work situation. Yes, understand it. But might it not be ego in the sense that I'm so important, the organization will fall apart if I leave? Well, seldom is that really going to happen. And so we need to sort of decouple our ego from our uh, physicality, because what happens when we're overstressed or we're burned out, it takes us, you know, we become short-tempered, one thing. We don't think as clearly. And also tasks that may take us an hour may take us um, three hours. And, you know, excessive fatigue will make, really creates a sense of an awake drunk. You're not high, but you're functionally impaired. And so you can't think right and can't do simple tasks easily. I think what's also at play here is something else you write about in this section of your book, which is addressing our blind spots, where the assumptions we make about the people we lead can impact how much we're willing to delegate to them, or worse, 
how much we're willing to extend trust. So what are some things leaders should keep an eye out for, especially when they're facing a crisis or an unexpected change like many organizations are facing right now? It's a good question. Um, In my book, the first book on grace, I talked about the sense of respect. And what is sense of respect? It's a sense of open-heartedness, looking at people for their potential rather than the negative. Let them prove themselves. And this often happens with new bosses take over. You know, treat everybody um, uh, fairly and give them equal opportunity and see what happens. And then you work from there. That's a sign of respect of you, treating the work as the person who does it with a sense of dignity. There's also that sense that where we need to um, focus on what people can do and help enable them to bring it out in in themselves by giving them opportunities to succeed, giving them challenges that they can do, giving them support, um, providing developmental opportunities, either educationally or job rotations. All of those kinds of things uh, are critical to um, developing, preparing people to meet challenge. Now, when times of crisis happen, this is a great time. It's a, we always use the phrase, no, let no crisis um, um, go, go to waste. So as a manager, as a boss, look for the bright, shiny, eager beavers. Those who don't wait to be told what to do, but go out and do it with a sense of initiative. It was as long as you're within the, you know, strategic intention of the organization, but look for those people who embrace it, who are comfortable with change, who can deal with uh, um, ambiguity and who have that ability to connect well with others who are true team players. So if they see a teammate who is struggling with whatever going on, being of, being of assistance to them, not meddling, but saying, hey, I'm here if you want to ask some questions and things like that. So we create this learning environment. What we do create a learning community, if you will. And we we focus on the sense of learning that takes the sort of kind of destigmatizes the lack of knowledge, if you will, because, hey, we're all learning together and we all have to learn, especially in our changing world uh, when everything, you know, we've spent through a significant period of change with the pandemic. And now we have new challenges uh, that we're wrestling with, uh, both economically, socially. And now this, you know, the the advent of a more and more capable artificial intelligence. Who knows what's going to happen? Um, so we have to be flexible, nimble and ready. And as a leader, we need to uh, prepare people for that so that they can adapt to it. And so I think the learning environment concept uh, is helpful to them. So, John, I'd like to move to the third and final section of your book, which is about how leaders should go about helping their employees and organization prepare for the future. And what I'd like to talk with you about is how leaders need to work at challenging the status quo, which many leaders are, in fact, not doing. As early this year, we were seeing many organizations openly stating that they wanted to return to pre-pandemic approaches to work. And not surprisingly, a big motivator for this is leaders want to stick to the tried and true in that they knew how to lead when everyone is under one roof and working the same hours. So how do leaders let go of the past and embrace challenging the status quo to help their organization be better prepared for the future? 
It's a great question. I think the first important thing is to, <laughs> and I borrow this at some point in the book, well, from William Goldman, who's a great screenwriter who wrote Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, Sun, uh, Princess Bride, lots of other things. And he, he wrote a wonderful memoir called uh, Confessions of the Screen Trade. And he, he kind of postulated at one point that uh, when it came to studio executives, nobody knows nothing in the sense that if they did, every movie uh, created would be a blockbuster. Now, he wrote that well before the the Fast and Furious franchise, which is up to number 10. But other than that, <laughs> nobody has a ticket to what's going to sell. So in other words, know, I would say know the situation, know what's really happening. It's not what's happening now, not with a context of what happened before and know that we ain't going back and we can only either say in stasis, which is probably not preferred, but we need to move forward. Know your resources. So what does that mean? Who are, who are the people on your team? What can they do? Uh, do you need to hire new people? You know, the old saying is what keeps exec CEOs awake at night is not what they know, it's what they don't know. And so, and when new ch challenges happen, do I have the right people in the right places? Do I, can they be trained if I need to change or do we need to uh, acquire new talent? All of these things, so knowing your resources. And then finally, developing a strategy that is consistent with where you want to go and communicate that strategy as you go forward and attest it and develop your tactics from there. And guess what else you do? You revise your strategy as situations change so that you're, again, as I said before, you're nimble um, and you're agile and you move forward. But I think this you're alluding to this a couple of times, and I think it's very important, uh, Tanvir, is yes, we're not going, most places aren't going back to a five-day-a-week schedule, but they can go back to this hybrid and we need to learn to deal with it. Um, and um, it's it's going to take a, a process of adaptation. Uh, but I'm, you know, we're human beings. We've survived this great pandemic that up it was up upheaval. Working in a hybrid work environment isn't nearly as significant as that. It, it's it's problematic if we don't figure it out, but we will figure it out. And it's important to understand when we need to come together and why we need to come together. Uh, and I think it's very important for, let's say, Gen Z people to learn to work together because many of them became employed during the pandemic and they work in a form of isolation. Time to bring them together so they can learn the ways of the workforce. So how they learn to communicate, connect effectively, uh, be a, a, a more helpful teammate, a teammate. At the same time, there can be things which are virtual, all of that kind of stuff. So let's let's use the this face-to-face -face time as our most precious time. And lots of other things can be done um, uh, not in group settings or not. It can be done in a different hybrid location. So, John, I think it's clear to everyone that we're going to be in a period of uncertainty for some time. So with that in mind, in terms of leading with grace under pressure, what do you see as being the critical skills or attributes leaders will need to adopt to not only succeed at leadership in the months ahead, but that will help them better navigate their organization, no matter what lies around the corner. Well, I'm going to take a little bit of a step back. One of my favorite favorite um, um, author, I should say, playwrights is Horton Foote. Horton Foote uh, uh, wrote the screenplay for. Um, I'm blanking out on it. <laughs> it's a famous movie, um, uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. But he also wrote many uh, original plays. Uh, he wrote the movie Tender Mercies. He grew up in East Texas 
And he remembers as a child hearing his aunts or great aunts say, we've never seen times as hard as these. Boy, those were hard times. And those were elderly people. They had lived through sandstorms and all kinds of things, war and drought and all that. We've never seen such hard times. Sadly, all of us see hard times and hard times continue. That's not to minimize where we are. But in other words, have a long-term perspective. There's going to be good days. There's going to be bad days. How do you navigate through each of it? Don't get too high. Don't get too low. Work forward. So I think perspective is essential. Now, that's the macro picture. Uh, from my perspective, let's infuse grace into this, okay? Let's treat people equitably, honorably, and as a leader with a sense of compassion, I'm going to demonstrate my care. I'm going to show that you matter. I'm going to be empathetic to the situation. And this is where em compassion is empathy and action. It's not enough to feel another's pain. If you're in a boss's situation or manager, how can I make it better for you? How can we pull people together? That's what great leaders do. They have a heart to them. Show your heart. Um, make it known that you... Um, um, uh, care about them as individuals and foster that sense of grace, that sense of connection, that sense of community throughout the organization. That's how you prepare for the future. Because as William Goldman said, nobody knows nothing, but I would add a thing, except change is permanent. The sense of change is permanent. Well, John, as I said at the beginning of our conversation, I've been enjoying your writings on leadership for several years now. And it's wonderful to finally have the opportunity to speak to you in person about a subject we both care deeply about. Well, the honor is mine, Tanvir, because likewise, I'm a fan of the work you do and the work you do. You have a, you're a very generous soul. Uh, you are wise and you share your wisdom with a spirit of generosity. And uh, I know you're benefiting lots of people. So it is an honor for me to be with you today, Tanvir. If you'd like to learn more about John's book or his work, Visit the show notes for this episode at tanvernasir.com slash LBC. And if you'd like to learn more about my speaking work, whether that be for a leadership keynote or workshop event, I'd like to invite you to check out my speaking and workshop pages and to fill out the contact form on my website at tanvernasir.com so we can talk more about the kinds of insights and practical advice I can share with your organization on how to address some of the challenges and issues leaders face today. I'm Tavid Desir, and you've been listening to Leadership Biz Cafe.